Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Hello, Bill Bant. Good to be with you here. We're back. We're doing, we're doing sequels, man. Not just sequels, though. What, what are we doing tonight, Bill Bant? We're doing sequels that bummed us out. That's right. We're doing the most disappointing sequels of the 80s. Yes. So it's a very special mini-sode for you this week. Um, originally, we were going to do a movie, <laughs> but Jason called me over the weekend. He made it sound like he was going to have bad news, but it was actually pretty good news. You were out filming a movie this past week. And it was, yeah. Yeah, let us know what it's, what it's all about. I'm super oh, excited well, for you, man. I appreciate you bringing it up. I get to plug my film. This is exciting. So, yeah, I got to shake the dust off and act once again. Uh, so this has been great. Uh, it's been a little while. I had a supporting role in an indie feature film coming out of the John Paul the Great Catholic University out of San Diego. Wonderful school that has an excellent film program, and they are, you know, they funded their first feature film. It is called Oh Brawling Love, very like Shakespearean title, uh, relationship comedy drama. Yeah, it was just it's fun. It was, hey, Bill, I got to play my first dad role. I know, dad. Yeah, I've graduated to the the dad category. That's what I play now. So it was it, like I said, shaking the dust off. It was fun. It was just a real pleasure to be on set. This was an absolute professional cast and crew. And at the helm was Maggie Mart. She was our director and just a consummate pro. Couldn't have been more in control and had a great presence, knew exactly what she wanted and also had a gentle touch. She's an actor's director. And it was just a real pleasure to work with her for her. Um, so yeah, shout out to the entire cast and crew of Oberalling Love out of yeah, JP Catholic down in San Diego. Just uh, they're killing it. They're doing just great work. So the the film is still in production. I get to go back for one more day of shooting, and hopefully this film will then get a release uh, in early 2023. Yeah, so we'll be I'll be looking forward to that. Yeah, we'll definitely give you updates on the show when it's uh, released. And um, yeah, luckily, Jason was able to make some time in his schedule so we could at least do a mini-sode. So we had something for you guys this week. So hopefully you enjoy it. Like I said, we're doing mini-sode on movie sequels released in the 80s that we were disappointed with. Our expectation for these movies might have been way too high, or these movies just didn't fulfill or capture the magic of its predecessor. It doesn't mean that these movies are necessarily bad movies which I'm sure most of them were, though. So here's some of our five most disappointing 80s sequels. And I'm going to say, I'm going to do the over-under again at one and a half. And I think we're actually going to go under. Because I know, like, we like the same movies, but I think our tastes are, are different enough that I, I think our sequel choices are going to be different. Okay, okay. I'm taking the under. I'm, I'm going over. You're going That's over? That's my, my prediction here okay and as always yeah sorry we haven't discussed our list so we're not this isn't fixed right we do not know what uh the other gentleman has chosen for this particular list 
Yes. But uh, this was interesting, man. It was it was a lot harder than I thought. One, there are so many sequels out there to 80s movies that did or were not released in the 80s. They were released much later. So when I was thinking of all these great, oh, yeah, that sequel was terrible or I hated that sequel. Dang it. That came out in 1990. Or I mean, I'll throw one out there right now, folks. Highlander 2, The Quickening is not going to be on this list because we stuck to films that were released in the 80s. That would have been a match. For sure. I was talking to our, our mutual friend Marwan today. He's like, I know Bill's going to choose Highlander 2. I was like, he would if it had come out in the 1980s. He's like, oh, that's right. It was actually early 90s. And because as we discussed briefly offline, that a lot of the sequels that I didn't care for in the 80s I couldn't remember a damn thing about. I just knew in general that I didn't like them or they were disappointing. Or like you said in the intro, not necessarily bad movies, but flat movies. So they're not very memorable. And I, that was the whole reason why they were disappointing. And just the way it is where everything's easy access on streaming. Most of these films I could find immediately and rewatch or at least skim through to get an idea of the plot and the characters, the actors, the story, et cetera. That was a lot of fun. It was fun and uh, it was quick. It's amazing the access we have these days. Um, okay, so let's get to it. Let's just get to it. Okay. Um, so I actually did my list in chronological order from early 80s until the end of the decade. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Oh, okay. Well, we can go in chronological order. Uh, let me see here. Uh, why, don't, why don't you go first? Okay. So, yeah, we'll play a little guessing game to see if you can uh, guess what my movies are. Okay. So my first one was directed by Blake Edwards. The tagline for the movie, and this was going to probably give it away for you. There is only one Inspector Clouseau. His adventure continues. All right. Wow. So obviously this is a Pink Panther film and it is a sequel. So the only one I can think of right off the top of my head is Pink Panther Returns. Uh, is that the title? What's the title? No. Of? So this one uh, was 1982's Trail of the Pink Panther. And it stars Peter Sellers, David Niven, Richard Mulligan. Oh my gosh. I, that title is not even familiar to me. So this movie was made after Peter Sellers was deceased. And what they did was they inserted outtakes from previous Pink Panther movies, put them in there, and then built a story around the outtakes. And the whole premise is that Inspector Clouseau's been hired for this whatever mission it is, and he goes missing and a reporter's out to try to figure out what happened to Inspector Clouseau. Gotcha. And it was weird because being a kid, my dad loved Pink Panther movies. So we'd watch them all the time. So I'd watch them all the time. So I was a huge, huge fan. Oh, yeah. Uh, same. Yeah. My father and I as well. I, same thing for sure. And being as young as I was, I really did not know Peter Sellers had passed. And so the first time I watched this movie... I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, I've seen, I mean, granted, you know, there is a Pink Panther formula that you see throughout the movies, but when I was watching this movie, I'm like, wait, this scene seems so close to something else I've seen in another movie. Why am I seeing this almost exact same scene again? That it made no sense to me. Right. Until after I had found out what had happened and realized like, oh, this isn't new stuff. This is just old stuff. This should have been some kind of like tribute special or something yeah, to yeah, Peter totally. Sellers. 
That's exactly what it should have been. You yeah. can't make a movie out of this. This is horrible. And what's funny is, is Peter Sellers' wife actually sued the oh, movie studio right. because she said this was an insult to her late husband. Absolutely. And, and she won. Oh, that's great. $1.4 million. How about that? So very disappointing. And then they tried again with Curse of the Pink Panther, where they tried to bring in Ted Watts. And that was a huge failure, too. And then that pretty much sunk Pink Panther until... Um, Son of the Pink Panther, which was... Uh, oh, yeah, right. I can't remember that actor's name. Roberto Bellini? Is that it? Bellini, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great pick. Trail of the Pink Panther. Yeah, I tried watching it again recently. I fell asleep 20 minutes in. <laughs> That's great. I actually did watch some uh, YouTube clips of the classic sellers Pink Panther films with my dad uh, on vacation not too long ago. And... Uh, just just a real pleasure. I mean, it's just a blast. He's just an incredible, incredible talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad his wife won the suit there, the lawsuit, uh, because, yeah, that seems just to be more of a disservice to, to his legacy. Yeah. Because he was just and is still revered by so many. Yeah. If you're going to watch a Pink Panther movie, either watch uh, Shot in the Dark or Revenge of the Pink Panther. Maybe that's what I was thinking of when I said Pink Panther Returns. There is a return of the Pink Panther. Got it. All right. So if we're going in chronological order, I'm going with a sequel from 1985. Ooh, okay. Uh, well, I'm going to do, oh man, both taglines totally give it away. Let's try it. Let's see here. It's directed by Louis Teague. All right. This is the one I knew we were going to match on. Oh, okay. There we go. So I will just go, I'll go over the two taglines. One, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Two, they're back again and romancing a brand new stone. That's right. It is The Jewel of the Nile, the 1985 sequel to Romancing the Stone, which was our second episode on this podcast, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. So, yeah, The Jewel of the Nile, like I said, directed by Louis Teague, starring Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, Danny DeVito, and Spiros Focus. Spiros Focus as Omar. Little brief synopsis of the film. When Joan Wilder is abducted while on a trip along the Nile, her boyfriend Jack Colton and pal Ralph rush to rescue her and retrieve a fabled jewel. I know you'll have your take on this as well. And I love the fact that when you look this film up on IMDb, you only get the photos of the top build cast. The entire supporting cast has no photos. (laughs) It's amazing. Bill, I barely remembered anything about this movie, but I did find it on streaming and I got to skim through it, fast forward through it. I do remember being excited just to go to the movies to see this. I did go with my family to see this in the theater and I did anticipate a rock and roll adventure. And that's not quite what I got. I wanted to like it and I still enjoyed the movie going experience. I remember it did have some fun moments, but it wasn't that grab you by the seat roller coaster. The best thing, honestly, to come out of it might be Billy Ocean's when the going gets tough, the tough get going. 100% agree on that one. When that video came out, the celebrities are in the video. And I got I watched it again as a trip. And it's a fun, totally 80s sing along type of song. And Billy Ocean's voice is unmistakable, but you get... Kathleen Turner, Danny DeVito, and Michael Douglas in their white suits singing backup to Billy Ocean in the music video. 
And it's just kind of fun to watch because they're having fun and it's them. Like they got the actual stars of the movie to be in the music video. And that was just a different time, man. It's the days of MTV back in the in the 80s. It was just great to see as a kid. It's like, oh my gosh, this is cool, so cool to see this, you know, the movie stars in the music video. So I don't know what it was about the sequel. I think sometimes when you, you change location, that can be an issue that's off-putting. You know, they now are in the desert for the sequel. The plot just isn't as engaging. And spoiler alert, the jewel is a man. Yeah. So this time it's they're not going after an actual priceless gem of any kind. The score isn't great. It's very 80s synth. It missed that mystery and magic of Alan Silvestri's score from the original. So that's just a little comment on the music in general uh, that kind of affected it for me. Here's one thing. The chemistry actually between Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner is still electric. It's still there. It's just that the story isn't. It's flat. There's, and that goes for a lot of these sequels that just are disappointing. And there isn't, there's an action sequence with an F-16 right. going through the town and the wings get ripped off. Ladies and gentlemen, this is, but it's no Top Gun. Let's just put it that way. The plane doesn't actually ever take off. They hit the uh, afterburner at one point and ended up just crashing it into like a sand dune. So Roger Ebert agreed that it is not quite the equal of Romancing the Stone, but he praised the interplay between Douglas and Turner. He says here, it seems clear he wrote that they like each other and are having fun during the parade of ludicrous situations in the movie, and their chemistry is sometimes more entertaining than the contrivances of the plot. Could have said it better. The box office for it, it was pretty good. They did all right uh, with this sequel. 96.7 million, Romancing the Stone, its predecessor, the original made 115, 115 million, and this made 96.7 million. So it wasn't necessarily a flop, but it's just flat. Yes. A good word to describe this movie as flat. The special effects are horrible. Yeah. I watched it again recently after we had done the Romancing the Stone episode two years ago, and I don't really remember anything. Yeah. I mean, the the entire action finale, even, it, I couldn't even describe it to you appropriately now. It's just kind of lackluster. Mm-hmm. The climax of the film. Because it does like this whole Jack's jealous of Joan because she's taken off with her career. And well, and she, the whole idea is that, yeah, she's kidnapped and yeah. he has to rescue her. And it all takes place in the desert. And she's been kidnapped by this Egypt. I don't know if he's Egyptian. There's like a, a military guy. Right. And I don't even remember why she was kidnapped and what was the whole point of that was. They wanted her to write a book. And there's rebels that are involved, the rebels that are trying to overthrow this evil general and they team up sort of with Dan and Danny DeVito, who was not on the side of by any means of Douglas in the first film is now part of the team. Yep. And this one, it just is all kind of all over the place. That's the best way to put it. It's all over the place. So yeah, we, have, yeah, yeah. we both had on our list. We both agree. Jewel of the Nile, huge disappointment. All right. So I'll go on to my second one. I'm pretty confident this is not, we're not matching on this one. <laughs> all right. So the tagline for this, and this is not going to help you at all. So I'll do the tagline first is the insanity continues. Jason, you got anything? <laughs> all right. I'm going to give you the director. Director's not going to help you either. All right. Ken Wiederhorn. Oh, we, oh good old Wiederhorn. Of course. Yes. I'm oh, sure you I can name me his whole filmography. His whole filmography. 
I have no idea. Uh, you know what I'm going to do is throw out what I had spoken to again, our mutual friend Marwan earlier. And I, this is what he kept saying is like, is this, are you going to do Arthur two on the rocks for this podcast? And I was like, no, actually, no, that's not on my list. And I didn't know if that would even uh, was released in the eighties, but uh, I have no idea. Bill Bant. Okay. So this is funny. It's starring Richard Mulligan. Another Richard Mulligan movie already. I'm two for two with Richard Mulligan. I guess I was not a fan of Richard Mulligan in the 80s. Wow. Until he did Empty Nest. Kim Richards, John Larroquette, and Paul Rubens. Came out in 1984. If you get this, I'd be very impressed. There might be like two or three people that are listening to this podcast right now that might now know who it is. I have no idea. Because I don't think think you saw the first one. First one came out in this. here, Here, I'll tell you who was in the first one. Came out in the 70s. Bill Murray. Oh, is it Meatballs 2? Yes, Meatballs okay. 2. Got it. So I actually saw this movie in the theater. It was a double feature. It was Meatballs 2 and Conan the Destroyer. Oh, there you go. I was tempted to put that one on my list. Well, I couldn't put Conan the Destroyer on my list because I actually saw Conan the Destroyer first. So I didn't know how bad it was because I had not seen Conan the Barbarian yet. Oh. <laughs> so I'm giving it away. I'm not Conan the Destroyer is not on my list. And I loved Meatballs as a kid. I remember seeing that in the drive-in with my parents. I know you're a fan. For yeah. Sure. This one was God awful. I think there's a whole subplot with an alien, like some ET looking thing in it. Oh my God. It's just terrible. I, 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 there's now nothing I else to say about it. Is it available to watch on streaming? It might be. I mean, I even, now, I'm, now I, I need to see some of this. Yeah. And the scary thing is that they actually did two more sequels after this. Amazing. So Meatballs 2, 1984. So I wonder terrible. what the decision-making process was behind that to make more sequels. Was it a big hit? Did it make money? Do we, no, do we this, know? No, it bombed. And the other yeah, two, I think, went like, straight to video. There you go. I think one of them has um, Corey Feldman, and the other one has uh, Sal- Sally Kellerman, who you know, we just recently lost, and Patrick Dempsey is in it. Oh, okay. This is also a kind of a sign of the times of the straight-to-video you know, was when that began because they knew they could make money in the VHS market. Right. Just based on the name. Somebody's going to rent it. I would. We would. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, John Larroquette's in it. Can't be that bad. Or like you said, Corey Feldman or even a Patrick Dempsey or something. It's like, oh, it's the kid from Camp I Me Love. Right. And then Kim Richards, who had starred in the um, Escape from Witch Mountain movies. Oh, okay. And they kind of hint that it's still the same character. Because she kind of has like some little superpowers in this too, which is kind of weird. She was probably the highlight of it because I just thought she was so geek back then. But yeah, stay away from meatballs too. Stay away from the meatballs. Hey, let's take a quick break and hear from our friends over at the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Hey, do you enjoy movies? If so, you're going to want to check out the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. We're inviting you to join us as we dive into beloved movies from 10 years ago and beyond. We cover every genre and every era. The show is fun and personal, but also insightful and informative. The Retro Movie Roundtable is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Please check them out over at the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. Now back to our show. So for my number two, which is from the year 1987, most of my, all my films are the latter half of the 80s. Here's a couple of taglines for you, Bill Bant. Okay. One, a hair-raising comedy. Okay. Two, 
freshmen have always had trouble adjusting to college life, but never like this. Is it Revenge of the Nerds 2? No, it can't be. No, no. This is directed by Christopher Leach, and I'll give you the brief synopsis, and this will give it away. Okay. Todd Howard is a struggling college student. Nothing seems to be going very well for him until he turns into a wolf. Oh, wow. Okay, so this is Teen Wolf 2. Teen Wolf 2 spelled T-O-O. And it's funny because I, I am a fan of the Smartless podcast and Jason Bateman will say, yeah, it's not a sequel. T-O-O. It's not a sequel. It's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and this was interesting. I remember I had seen it at some point, most likely on cable. I don't think I saw this in the theater by any means. So this is starring Jason Bateman, Kim Darby, and John Aston. John Aston plays the evil Dean Dunn in this film. And this whole thing is Todd Howard is actually the cousin of Michael J. Fox's character, Scott, from the original Teen Wolf. I kind of remembered that. Right. So the film, I got to skim through this. This is available on streaming. And so I watched a lot of it and it's easy to kind of fast forward because it has a lot of those 80s high school movie tropes. And in this, we have Jason Bateman as Todd Howard, and he doesn't even think he's got the werewolf gene. He knows that it runs in the movie. And the conceit of this movie is that because of the events of Teen Wolf 1, everyone in this world is aware of the fact that this family has the gene. And like the father, uh, Todd Howard's uncle, who was Scott's father in the first one uh is a werewolf and that scott was a werewolf like it's known in the universe of this story that scott in the other high school in high school was you know the basketball player who turned into a werewolf but we have todd now who is supposed to be going to college in colorado and it's great man because i'm watching the opening and you see all the kind of the dorms and stuff and it's a beautiful location and it's the claremont colleges out here in LA, where I drive all the time. Oh, okay. I'm like, I know that building. I know that building. I dropped off delivery there the other day. There we go. It's great. Beautiful, beautiful location to shoot uh, a film. So I was like, oh, yeah, no wonder they, they used it for this film. So the, uh, the whole idea in this movie is that Todd Howard, they assume that he does have the werewolf gene and they've given him an athletic scholarship to go to this elite school. And he's supposed to be part of the boxing team. So they th just think he's going to be a werewolf and have all this athletic prowess as a result. And he can't box for a dance, like he worth a damn. Like he just is terrible. Uh, and he doesn't even think he has the werewolf team, but then it comes out and it's just weird. This feels like a bit of a, an after school special. That's the look it has. We have obviously a young, fresh-faced Bateman. This is his feature film debut. I'm a huge Jason Bateman fan of today, obviously of Arrested Development and now Ozark fame. And he is hilarious. And he has such a sharp wit and sense of comic timing, obviously. And in this, because he's so young and he was a child star, you know, we know him from Silver, Silver Spoons. Spoons and, yeah. Right. And uh, he had his own ser uh, series briefly. It was a spinoff. Oh, yeah. I can't remember the name of that. I forget what the title was. But here, he does a decent job, but it's like he just hasn't found his groove yet. He hasn't grown into what he 
would later on and now is as an actor and as a comic actor, etc. So his delivery and timing isn't quite as sharp. And again, we get a lot of the 80s school movie tropes. We get the bad guy, Dean, played by John Astin. Uh, we get the, the goofy buddies of his in college. And we get uh, the return of Mark Holton as Chubby. Uh, Mark Holton, I believe, was it was my hey, it's that actor from Naked Gun. Yes, he was. He was. Hey, it's a great <laughs> Uh And he is uh, Todd Howard's buddy Chubby in this. He was Scott's buddy Chubby and <laughs> buddy Chubby in this. Oh boy, in uh, the original <laughs> Teen Wolf. So we get him in this movie. The writing is generic. Again, flat. The wolf transformation. It's not the worst. It's not the worst I've seen, but the problem is that it's not fun. The movie's just not, it's not as fun. The pacing's off. It doesn't have a lot of energy. It's missing Michael J. Fox's comic timing. And, you know, it has the similar storyline where then Bateman kind of accepts the fact that he's turning into werewolf. Then he's cool all of a sudden. And he's like the big hit in school. Then he loses his identity, who he really is because he's kind of a nerd, actually, he's kind of majoring in science and all this. And then he realizes that, uh, of course, he has to then box, and he's great at boxing when he's the werewolf, but then refuses to be the werewolf in the end. He just wants to be himself and has to fight the big bad in the boxing ring at the end. But he's just himself. He's depowered. He does not, he's not a werewolf. And of course, somehow he wins, which is completely inexplicable, and ends up with the right girl at the end. The only great thing about this movie is it features the amazing 80s song, Send Me an Angel. Love that song. Yes, that's a very good song. Send me an angel. So that was a big plus. On their show, Gene Siskel and Ebert specifically gave the film two emphatic thumbs down, (laughs) with Ebert complaining that the industry had picked, along with Date with an Angel, the two worst films possible to be released on the same day. Wow. This made $7.9 million. The original Teen Wolf made $80 million. Huge sleeper hit, yeah. So Teen Wolf 2, $7.9 million. So a rough start for Jason Bateman, but he did all right. He yes. did all right. Yeah, that's a good choice. I think I didn't put it on my list just because Teen Wolf, I think, surprised everybody. I and mean, that was really because of the success of Back to the Future. Right. And they were in the theaters at the same time. Correct. At one point, Teen Wolf was two, number yep. two, right behind Back to the Future. And I think because going into it, I knew it wasn't Michael J. Fox that I really didn't want to see this anyway. Right. All I remember, I see, I forgot even Chubby was in it. I just remember boxing and he was related and that was it. I didn't even realize that they had given the scholarship to go there just because they thought he might be the wolf. Right. That's kind of a cool little angle. At least that's that was my interpretation. I might have to go back and watch that. It's an easy watch. And you can just kind of, again, you can fast forward because you know what's going to happen. It follows the formula. Like I had the same reaction when I knew it wasn't Michael J. Fox. I was like, I had no expectations. So I remember when I did see it, I was like, eh, blah, meh. And that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. So there you go. All right. So go to my third most disappointing sequel, The 80s. This is kind of surprising. It was directed by Amy Heckerling. Okay. And the tagline is going to give this away. So for over 2,000 years, Europe has survived many great disasters. Now for the real test, the Griswolds. 
<laughs> of course, European vacation. Yeah. Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, 1985s, National Lampoons, European vacation. Man, what the hell happened with this one? I know everybody likes to blame the kids, poor um, Anna Hill and Jason Lively, but that movie just wasn't funny regardless. I haven't seen it in so long. I quote the one part all the time, especially my dad loves it with it. Look, kids, Big Ben, Parliament. Yep. Uh, Big Big Ben, Parliament, because they get stuck in the roundabout. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I remember some running gags with the guy that he keeps running over basically in the car like he keeps injuring the same guy over and over again the poor sap poor british guy that's about it i don't remember much else from the movie to be honest pretty much after the game show opening when they win the trip right okay i remember the opening that's right on the game show yeah it just all goes downhill from there and it just it just doesn't work yeah it's just terrible it's unfortunate and yeah there's a whole subplot of clark has the video camera and, and films uh, his wife naked and they somehow lose the camera and then becomes like a oh, huge God, porn right. film throughout Europe. And it's just, uh, and Audrey, she's just annoying throughout the whole thing. That doesn't help. They didn't give a good storyline. And Rusty's just trying to get laid the whole time, which yeah, I get it. He's that age, but it just, it, it just didn't work. I mean, thank God right. they course correct it. And got things right with Christmas vacation. But skip European, just watch vacation and just skip over to Christmas. Good call. Good call. Absolutely. So in the original, the classic, Anthony Michael Hall was Rusty. Correct. And the problem was Who was Audrey? Who played Audrey? I can't remember the actress's name. Okay. But the problem was he couldn't come back to do European. So then they had to recast. Audrey, because then Which they one thought is, it was too weird. Isn't Juliet Lewis Audrey in one of it? Is it she's big, in, is it Christmas vacation? She's in Christmas, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then Ethan Embry is oh right in uh Vegas. The Vegas. That's right. I'm okay with that one. The Vegas vacation? Yeah, it's an okay. Yeah, I haven't one. seen that in a while either. I would yeah, that's third. But European vacation is dead, dead last. Oh, that was such a disappointment. Wow. Yeah, I God, I haven't seen any of that film in so long. Good call, Bill Bant. Just, just so disappointed. Yes. All right. I've got another for my my number three. I've got another film from 1987. You're going to know this one. No okay. question about it. Because it has probably one of the, the most recognized taglines of all time for a disappointing film. It's okay. just you put the so pressure simple. on me. No, you'll know. Okay. I, I actually was assuming this was why I said we'd have two films on this that are the same because the tagline of this film is this time it's personal. Oh, so we're doing Jaws four. Yeah. The revenge. Yes. Okay. Did you not, did you not see it as a sequel? I got nervous. I, I just got nervous. Oh, okay. I was going to get the movie wrong. <laughs> like, oh no. <laughs> I was like, that just seems so obvious. It's Jaws the Revenge, but I'm going to say it. And you'll be like, no, Bill, that's not, that wasn't it. (laughs) No, yeah, that is a sequel. You nailed it, Bill. You nailed it. Well done. Jaws the Revenge. Holy shitballs. When's the last time you saw this movie, Bill Ben? I've actually watched this movie a bunch of times. Yeah. Jaws is my favorite movie of all time. I know. That's why I thought you were going to have this on your list for sure. 
I was, but I think because by the time I saw it, we all knew what a shit show it was. Yeah. That my expectations were super low. And for some reason, it even was lower than that. Right. This movie's batshit crazy. Yeah. I mean, directed by Joseph Sargent, starring Lorraine Gary, reprising her role as Ellen Brody. We have Lance Guest as Michael Brody. Mario Van Peebles, Peebs, man, is in this. Karen Young, yeah. Judith Barcy, Michael Caine, and Lynn Whitfield. So the brief synopsis is Chief Brody's widow believes that her family is deliberately being targeted by another shark in search of revenge. This plot, this concept, the whole thing is just batshit crazy. It's bananas because the idea is that there is a great white shark that is out there seeking revenge on the Brody family as if it is a sentient being that is finishing the job like as if the previous white sharks from the previous films had not completed the task of killing all of the Brodies and that this shark now has it in for the remaining Brodies. Not that any of the Brodies had gotten killed in the previous films anyway, but just like just has it out for them. So the, this film, first of all, it's just strange because we're so we're used to Amity, the setting of Amity Island, and it takes place around Christmas. And just from the opening credits, you're like, oh, my God, is this just a bad 80s horror film? Cr- opening credits are cheesy. They're terrible. It's low. It looks low budget. You're like approaching Amity Island and you're in the water and it's somewhat similar. We have the John Williams theme playing, but it even sounds like a cheap version of the John Williams Jaws theme as if like the, they just got a minimal, minimal orchestra just to pull off the song. And then you come to like the surface of the water and the surface of the water is like bubbling and you're approaching the island and it just looks so cheesy. It looks like somebody was in the water blowing bubbles and you're, it's supposed to be the POV of the shark, like approaching the island. It's ridiculous. And I have to say, man, the first kill in the movie is the younger brother, the younger Brody, uh, younger brother to Michael, uh, Sean Brody. And the editing is terrible. The effects are terrible. He's out in the middle of the night trying to remove the uh, log that's stuck on a buoy. And all of a sudden, the shark just magically appears out of the water and the next shot is of Sean Brody with his arm missing. Yes. And he's screaming. Then the shark, then it cuts to like the shark above the water all of a sudden, the mouth. And it's just terrible editing. And then all of a sudden, the shark drags the boat down with Sean. And it's the tension isn't there. It's not as scary. Granted, this is the fourth film in the franchise, and we know it's already on the downslide. So, because the third, you know, Jaws 3D wasn't so hot either. But the, just the fact that then the Brodies, well, Ellen Brody decides to move to the Bahamas to get away from it all because her son, Michael, played by Lance Guest, is down there uh, doing research. And he's like a scientist, I believe, working alongside Mario Van Peebles. And Mar- uh, Michael has his own family and they live down there like, come on down to the Bahamas, mom, live with us. Everything will be wonderful. And then, of course, the shark somehow follows them all the way down to the Bahamas and hijinks ensue. And Michael Caine is like the local island pilot who is flying them around. And this is great, man. 
because I here's I'm just going to read this verbatim pretty much. But this is in the IMDb Wikipedia research. This is one of Michael Caine's notorious paycheck movies. Yes. <laughs> and while, while he was shooting this, he wasn't able to collect his Academy Award. He couldn't be at the Oscars. Yeah, and our sisters. Award, right. Because of the filming in the Bahamas. And I remember watching that and being excited because he was making a Jaws movie. I'm like, oh, cool. Another Jaws movie's coming. Yeah. Then that happened. So then he, this is uh, from the research again. In a press release, he explains, he's like, this is part of a movie history. The original was one of the great all-time thrillers. I thought it might be nice to be mixed up with that. Uh, I like the script very much. And then, however, Kane later claimed, I have never seen the film, but by all accounts, it is terrible. However, I have seen the house that it built, and it is terrific. That's such a great quote. That is one of the best quotes. It really is, man. In his 1992 autobiography called uh, What's It All About? He says that the film will go down in my memory as the time when I won an Oscar, paid for a house, and had a great holiday. Not bad for a flop movie. No, yeah, true. Good for him. Good for him. Uh, so my take on this, Bill Band, is that uh, because Lance Guest is in it, they should have just rewrote the entire script and made it uh, The Last Starfighter 2. They should have. It probably would have done better. They should have made that instead. But it's slow. It's only 90 minutes long. The shark is terrible. I don't understand why Ellen Brody does this, but she decides to take the boat out at the very end and just go after the shark by herself. I'm like, what's your plan here? What are you going to do? She has no weapons, no nothing. It's just incredibly bad because the plot doesn't make any sense. Mario Van Peebles, the whole ending, like I said, she goes out on the boat, this whole ending with the boat has, what do you call the the thing that sticks out on the front of the boat? Oh, it's like that front mast or whatever. Yeah, is sticking out. And basically, long story short, she stabs the great white shark jaws with the pointy end of the front of, yeah the staff the, or mast of the boat and the shark explodes well first it roars like a lion it because, actually roars because you know sharks have lungs and they can make sound and i guess there was in the original cut that's not what happened i think she impales the shark but it doesn't explode but the audiences it didn't test well with audiences but then the shark does explode and you're to understand that it does have this. I, I'm not even. I'm not even. T- there's this electronic device inside the shark that has pulsating that Mario Van Peebles had put inside the mouth of the shark, and the shark basically eats Mario Van Peebles, and then somehow Mario Van Peebles survives the attack. He shows up on the surface of the water at the end, and he's bleeding everywhere, but he's fine. Uh, this movie's severely missing the John Williams score for sure. There's just no tension. It's slow. This is a just slow, crazy, weird drama. Because the mom, Ellen Brody, she has a psychic connection with the shark. She knows when the shark attacks, too. There's moments where she's with Michael Caine walking in the Bahamas. Everything's hunky-dory, and there's festivals going on. And then all of a sudden, she, like, looks off screen. She's like, what? Ooh. And there's, like, then it cuts the shark in the water attacking her. What? I don't know. Anyway... This made $51.9 million. Jaws 3D had made 88. Jaws 2 had made 208 million. The original blockbuster, the summer blockbuster, the original Jaws had made $472 million. 
Yeah, there's many stories how they rushed this one into production to get a summer release, and it was just hot mess. And it shows and just ruined it ruined the franchise for good. Yeah, that was it. One of my favorite comedians from the 80s was Richard Jenny, and he does a whole bit about Jaws Revenge. If I could find it, I'm going to put it in the show notes. It's hysterical. It pretty much sums up this movie as best that you can. And I do laugh because a couple of years later, Little Mermaid comes out. I was like, they stole the ending from Jaws of Revenge on how they're going to kill Ursula? Seriously? So that always, that always cracks me up. I was like, wow, one movie you're going to steal some. Jaws of Revenge is not the one. But it's a piece of crap. They show the shark way too much. And the shark doesn't oh, really. Yeah. Great whites are just, to me, I love shark. I, I just think they're beautiful creatures. And whatever this model was they had pushing along in the water was just, is an insult. It's just terrible. Yeah, they're elegant predators, you know, and you're absolutely right. It just looks like a giant rubber fake shark Mm -hmm. out of the water the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So terrible, terrible. Okay. So my number four was Jewel of the Nile. So we've already matched there. Got it. Um, So do you want to do your fourth? Is this your fourth? This will be my fourth. All right. Here we go. Tagline. This holiday season, journey to the most wonderful place in the universe, home. This is directed by, I'm sorry, I should say, did I say this from 1988? Okay. And directed by Daniel Petrie. Okay. As in Petrie dish. This may give it away. Are you ready? Yes. I'm going to go down the cast. Donna Michi. Got it. Wilford Brimley. Courtney Cox, Steve Gutenberg, Hume Cronin, Jack Guilford, and Jessica Tandy. It is Cocoon Bill Band. Is it The Return? You got it. Well done, my I friend. I almost put this one on my list. I almost did. It was <laughs> Cocoon The Return. It might have been number six or seven. Uh, yeah, uh, I had to do it. Uh, here's the synopsis, ladies and germs. The seniors return to Earth to visit their relatives Will they all decide to go back to the planet where no one grows old, or will they be tempted to stay back on Earth? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, this is a, basically a lot of the same from the first film, just rehashed. We've got a lot of elderly folks, uh, as charming as they may be, running around acting young. Uh, they've returned to planet Earth, and it's nice to see these familiar faces, as I, you know, Roger Ebert will say in this review that I'll mention in a moment. However, Kind of been there, done that. There is some of the decent score by James Horner here. I actually enjoyed the theme. I think I bought this. I'll be honest with you, this soundtrack on cassette, mm-hmm. the original, because I like the theme. Now, I'm re-watching this film, and I'm like, at this stage of my life, I'm 48 years old. This film had me thinking of some big questions, Bill Band, about how it would feel like to have the body of an elderly man, but feeling young again, youthful, and feel young, but have an older body. And it made me depressed, man. And then this movie made me depressed. I don't, I hate all this entire experience is terrible. Uh, What was it that came back because there were still, you got it. There's cocoons in the ocean. And yeah, this is part heist movie. They have to break into a scientific laboratory where Courtney Cox's character works. She's not the romantic interest in this film, although it is alluded that she would be the romantic interest of Steve Goober at the very, very end of the movie. I forgot she was in it. Yeah. So there is a heist because they, the, our uh, elderly charming characters have to go steal or they have to break out the Antarian, the alien out of this scientific lab where he's being kept 
uh, the alien that is, and the alien is dying. It's very ET, very ET. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's actually kind of a direct ripoff uh, that aspect of it. So, and the Antarian is a, this really weird looking glowing creature, kind of creepy in a way. Uh, I didn't realize that the the beautiful Antarian, who seems to be more of the romantic interest of Steve Gutenberg in this film, is played by Tani Welch, the daughter of Raquel Welch. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was her daughter. All right. Learned something new in my own podcast. Yeah, right. Love that. So yeah, Courtney Cox is underused in this film, uh, but she's super cute. Yeah, so for me, it was just kind of a, de- it's just kind of depressing because there's Jessica Tandy gets hit by a car and Hume Cronin uses his life energy to save her and then he dies. And it's like, oh, what are we doing here? This is, I don't know what, this is just not holding my attention. And I'm also depressed at the same time. Steve Gutenberg is just a bit of a goofball in the movie. Uh, Roger Ebert gave the film two and a half out of four stars saying, yes, the performances are wonderful. And yes, it's great to see these characters back again. But that's about it. For someone who's seen Cocoon, the sequel gives you the opportunity to see everybody saying goodbye for the second time. <laughs> uh, the original Cocoon had made $85.3 million. This sequel made $25 million. Wow. Yeah. So there you go. It's This is one of those movies that, again, Bill, it's not terrible. The movie's not terrible. It's just... There's no need for it. Really unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember that much about it. And then you had, yeah, you had Don Amici. He won an Oscar for the first one. He was kind of more spotlighted in the second one, wasn't he? It seemed like. Yeah, yeah. And he's good. He's really good. They're all great. Oh, yeah. And it's it always brings a smile to my face. See Wilford Brimley. I'm like, wow, yeah, there he is. He looks the same here and he looks the same. And What's the he like, 53 and later? And looks the same and the thing. And he looks the same and... <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh my god. Forty years later, same, same age as Wilford Brimley in Cocoon, and I look forty years younger. Yeah. <laughs> At least I think so. I don't know. I think so. All right, thank you. I think so, my friend. No doubt about it. It is pretty funny. That is a good choice. There you go. All right. So for my final most disappointing sequel of the '80s. All right. So the tagline is, "We're back." And another tagline would be, guess who's coming to save the world again? Directed by Ivan Reitman. Of course, but yeah. Really? Wow. Okay. Because you're just such a huge fan of the first one. Yes. Just like Jaws. This is your other baby. Yes. All right. Ghostbusters 2 is your choice. 1989. Your final entry. My final entry. Ghostbusters is definitely in my top 10 favorite films of all time. I was super, super, super excited when this came out. We were actually on vacation in Orlando, and I begged my mom to take me to go see this. Oh, I would imagine. I wanted to see this so bad, and I was disappointed. I remember being a little disappointed, too. I thought I remember being slightly, I mean, mostly entertained, but still like, ah, just doesn't capture the magic of the first. Right. I don't think they should have brought back Sigourney Weaver. The whole thing with the baby did not need it. Mm-hmm. And your bad guy was a painting. Right. That made no sense to me. And at the same time, between Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, they had the real Ghostbusters cartoon. There was better stories in the cartoon than I thought there was in this movie. I was like, there's so many stories you can do. And this is what you came up with. I did like how it started with the fact that the Ghostbusters were forced to disband and you were kind of seeing what they were doing in the meantime and that they had to get back together. Right. That stuff I liked. The soundtrack was a lot of fun. The pink slime element I thought was kind of neat with the ectoplasm and all that. But just the main bad guy 
just didn't work. Peter McNichols' character was so weird and quirky, but I, yeah. I did like him. I thought he was funny. Yeah, he's great. This movie has grown on me over time. But yeah, when I first saw it, I was super disappointed, totally bummed. Uh, a week later, I saw Batman. So that kind of helped me kind of push this uh, aside. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, yeah, Ghostbuster 2 for me, oh, so disappointed. It was so funny because I met someone recently couple years ago who told me they like ghostbusters 2 more than the first one i was like what but then again they were like 15 years younger so i was like oh that kind of makes sense because i I think they said they saw that one first you know it's such an interesting thing bill it just immediately makes me think of the star wars saga as it is because you and i have had this discussion and this is a real thing and there's no judgment here but it's a generational perspective. Mm -hmm. It's a generational opinion. And obviously we are doing this podcast because we are are of a generation. We have our perspective and our nostalgia and our attachments. These were the first times, you know, for us to see movies like this, like a Ghostbusters that just set our hair on fire. And so, you know, our expectations were so high, but if you had seen Ghostbusters 2 first, just like you saw Conan the Destroyer first, right? (laughs) you're like, wow, this is cool. And then you didn't realize, oh, the predecessor really is, you know, but you would still be a fan of the first time you saw something in that universe, right? right or yeah. something of that kind. And, you know, we talk about this with Star Wars. We'll talk to people or hear people that are 10 years younger, that's 20 years younger than this, that are fans of the prequels because that's what they saw. That's what they were exposed to. That was their introduction to the universe. And they have nostalgic attachments to that. And I would never take that away from them or uh, discredit that for any reason. It's pretty magical. I understand it and I can relate. Uh, So it is funny that somebody would come to you and be like, yeah, Ghostbusters 2, I think is better than the original. It's like, no, that's just you're from a a different time. Yeah. You you just have a totally different way of seeing things. And uh, on top of it, they're wrong. They're just wrong. Sorry. There you (laughs) go. The reason we have not done an episode on Ghostbusters yet is just because I want to make sure it's like one of our best episodes ever. I want to make sure it's going to be a top episode. I, and I still think we're learning as we're doing this. Well, it's going to take it. It's going to be a whole season of our podcast is what it is. We're going to do a uh, scene by scene analysis part series on Ghostbusters. Don't worry. We're not. <laughs> 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 I could, but we're not. Don't worry. We're going to break it down scene by scene. Okay. Um, you're on your fifth. Hey, and I lost the bet. Yep. I lost where I, my prediction was incorrect. You were right. I thought we were going to have two that were the same and we did not because my fifth entry okay. into the most disappointing sequels of the eighties. Well, this is also from 1989 and there are two taglines. I'm sure you'll get it. Number one, this time he has to choose number two. First, it was teacher to student. Then it was father to son. Now it's man to man. Man, I'm blanking. I know. Actually, yeah, it's a little bit harder than I thought. Uh, directed by John G. Avildsen. Oh, um, Karate Kid 3? That's what I'm going with, the Karate Kid Part 3. Almost put it on the list, too. It was another one we almost could have matched on. This one pisses me off. This one makes me angry. I did watch some of this recently. I'm sorry, Bill. I didn't even look for this on streaming. I didn't want to see any of it. Mm-hmm. I don't need to. I have memories of it. I've tr- I obviously watched it in its entirety, and then I've revisited it uh, from time to time. 
and I don't know if I've ever watched it all the way through a second time from beginning to end. I may have once, but uh, the synopsis here is ostracized villain John Kreese attempts to gain revenge on Daniel and Miyagi. With the help of a Vietnam War comrade, the wealthy owner who is the wealthy owner of a toxic waste disposal business. So if there is a highlight to this film, it actually are, is the, the antagonists, but not even that really. You get Martin Cove playing John Kreese again, who's great, who was the leader of the Cobra Kai in the original. And now he's like disgraced and he's down on his luck. But when we get the introduction of Terry Silver, who is this badass karate, black belt, et cetera, played by Thomas Ian Griffith. And I remember at the time, though, also feeling like, oh, is this kind of a cheesy Steven Seagal ripoff kind of thing? Because he's got that black slick backed hair, like in a ponytail kind of thing. He was a bad dude. And he kind of takes on the role of instructor of Daniel Sam in this movie. But regardless, this movie is just talk about flat and then, but just it's even worse than flat. I never liked this movie from the beginning. It really feels apart from the others somehow, whereas the whole thing has just got old and the actors are older. That's no fault of their own, but the story just feels old. And Daniel just gets manipulated throughout the whole thing. He's very, his character is very weak oh, yeah. throughout the whole thing. There's that crazy sequence when he's trying to, replace i think one of miyagi's bonsai trees on the side of a mount, like a hill yep. and the effects aren't very good and it's weird and the bottom line is ralph macho was 27 at the time of filming he's supposed to be playing an 18 year old his love interest is played by 16 year old robin lively yep he's 27 she's 16 here's what really grinds my gears though man okay about this movie. And I'm still dumbfounded to this day. The All Valley Karate Tournament. We have the main bad guy. We know is going to face off with Daniel at the at the end. The tournament has several rounds that you have to fight in in order to get to the championship round. Our bad guy has to fight through the rounds. For some reason, the rules are that the previous champion, the reigning champion, only has to fight in the final fight. How stupid is that from even just from a storytelling aspect, there's absolutely no buildup, absolutely no tension. Daniel sits on the sideline and watches the entire time. He only fights in the final round, in the championship round to defend his title against the bad guy in this. Mm -hmm. Not Terry Silver, it's this other kid or whatever. Right. Anyway, I was like, wait, he's not fighting and Daniel doesn't have to fight in the tournament? Why aren't we watching his journey, his arc? He's just going to show up and I'm like, does any other tournament do that? Do they like, hey, you're the reigning champion. You get to skip all the rounds this next tournament. You don't have to fight at all. You get to just, you get to uh, defend your championship in one fight. That's not how tournaments work. Like what if Tiger Woods was like, hey, we know you won the US Open last last year. So this time you don't have to play the, the 36, whatever holes. Right. You know, you just the, you'll be a one playoff hole at the end against the <laughs> yeah, leader. just one hole. Yeah, just one. yeah, yeah. That makes sense. What what the hell are they thinking? Like, what was I still pisses me off to this day because it just ruins. There's no climax. It's just flat. And then the ending, and he wins, and I'm like, he just looks out of shape. Nothing looks like the original, and or retains 
it's just like a faint ghost of the original. I just, again, you can hear the frustration in my voice. It only made $39 million. The original had made 130.8. The sequel did really well too, which I enjoyed, which uh, that made 130 million. Uh, Roger Ebert, who praised the first two films, did not enjoy part three. His colleague, Gene Siskel, also did not recommend the film, though he commended the performance of Thomas Ian Griffith, which he thought was nearly enough to save it. See, because the bad guys are okay in this movie. So in 2015, director John G. Evanson called the film a horrible imitation of the original, hastily written and sloppily rewritten, adding that it will baffle those who haven't seen the first two movies and insult those who have. At the 1989 Golden Raspberry Awards, this entry received five nominations but didn't win any of them. Uh, it was nominated for Worst Picture, Worst Screenplay, Worst Director, and Worst Actor, and Worst Supporting Actor. Wow. So, yeah, it's just, a, it's an all around just bad movie. And talk about disappointing too, because the first two were really, I mean, the first is an all timer. There's a young lady named Elizabeth Shue in that film. Don't know if you've heard of her. Jason, if anyone's followed this podcast, they've, they've heard of her. And the second one was great, had a lot of attention. It was, I enjoyed that story as well. You get, you know, Glory of Love, Peter Cetera. Come on. But this third one just had none of the magic at all. So boring and dumb. Uh, the part I watched recently, Larissa is so naive. He spends his college money to buy this shack. That's right. Yeah. To start a bonsai business with Miyagi, which is in the worst location. And he just thinks, oh, this place is going to, I'm like, you're a moron. What are you doing? Thank God they course corrected this with Cobra Kai. Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, I almost forgot because this whole franchise is really redeemed and saved by that show. Yes. Because it's wonderful because they really nailed the tone with the show. Mm -hmm. The show is really smart, really smart. They figured out a great, great tone worth watching. So there you go. That was my yeah fifth, fifth and final entry okay. uh, for this particular exercise. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's mini-sode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. We would really appreciate the support. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcasts at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. Uh, next week, speaking of sequels... We'll be bringing back our Summer at the Cinema series, where Jason and I will be discussing five movies during the month of July that take place during the summer months. This is a very popular series last year, and we hope not to disappoint. Um, our first movie will be Summer Rental, starring John Candy, Richard Perna, Rick Torn, and Carrie Green. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.